as far as Seamus Kennedy. Hitting it long and hitting it over the bar. First time he's ever scored in the championship. And he does it here in the All-Ireland final and levels up the match with ten and a half minutes gone. Four points apiece. Falsha, 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 Acharja Gale. This is episode 54 of the Rebel Matters podcast. And today's guest on the show is Seamus Kennedy, who played a pivotal role in Tipperary's recent victory over Kilkenny in the All Ireland Senior Hurling final on the 18th of August this year. So Seamus is walking around with a freshly polished Liam McCarthy medal in his back skyrocket. This is definitely a first for the Rebel Matters podcast, having such a recent All-Ireland winner on the show. And there's also a bit of a family connection to this episode as well, because my brother, Carbro O'Carolan, is the strength and conditioning coach for the Tipperary Senior Hurling team. And also the Cork-based players of from the Tip panel have been training with us in Ackley a couple of times a week for the last year or so, which is how I got to know Seamus. I have to say that this conversation with Seamus is the first time that the two of us have spoken to each other in English because we usually converse as Gilligan when we're in each other's company. So it was a little bit weird having to switch back to the Berla and the first seven or eight minutes of the episode are indeed in Irish. So you can listen through that and practice your couple of fuckle or you can skip ahead seven or eight minutes into the conversation once the chat starts. This episode's going to be coming out on Friday the 13th of September and there's an absolute bucket load of stuff happening in Cork this weekend. The Sounds from Safe Harbour Festival is on and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into some of the great gigs that are happening as part of that festival. So it's not too late if you're hearing this on the Friday or Saturday to come along to something. Check out the Sounds from the Safe Harbour Festival and the programme. You'll find it online somewhere or on their social media. We're actually hosting an event as part of this festival ourselves in Ackley. We had our very first storytelling by candlelight event last month in the social space at Ackley and the crew from the Sounds from Safe Harbour heard about it and heard that we were running another one at the same time as the festival and asked us would we like to incorporate our event into the festival programme and we are after doing that so we're hosting a storytelling night on Saturday the 14th of September at 8pm in Ackley you can come along to tell a story read a wee story sing a song bring a musical instrument or something weird along to share with the rest of the group Uh, or you can just come along and have a listen and enjoy the crack the last one was really good and it's a free event and it's open to everyone so if you're in or around Cork City on Saturday night and you're not doing anything else, come along to Are We Storytelling Night. Also, there wasn't a podcast in the last couple of weeks because I was up at the Electric Picnic two weeks ago and we had an absolute blast and it took a little bit of a recovery time after that and then got stuck into the work with Ackley and also with bringing the Palestine Community Gym project that we have on the go up to the next level. If you want to see the progress on that, you can go to the Palestine uh, Community Gym Instagram page. It's at Palestine Gym on Instagram and you can see the work that's going on there. The the space that we're going to be installing the gym into is currently being renovated. It's getting new electrics, new flooring, new windows, doors, uh, new walls even 
every single penny that we raised so far as part of that fundraising drive, including the 16,000 odd that we raised as part of the Gym Jam, is all going towards our project. And we're hoping to have the gym in before the end of the year now. So check that out. Also, next week, Kneecap are coming down to Cork. We were up in Electric Picnic with the Kneecap crew and the gig was absolutely mental. There was about 6,000 people at it. It was in the new Terminus stage uh, in Electric Picnic and the crowd went absolutely insane. Some bold, bold boy lit a flur during the gig as well and the security were not too happy about it. And another thing, this is coming out on Friday the 13th, Kneecap actually have a new track out today. Right today when this podcast is coming out, go to Spotify. Uh, as soon as this podcast episode is finished, go to Spotify, find the kneecap track and uh, download it. Kneecap are also on Patreon if you want to support them, as is the Rebel Matters podcast, which this would be a good time to thank the patrons of the podcast so far. So a massive shout out to everyone who's been supporting the Rebel Matters podcast through the Patreon website. If you're a regular listener, to RMP and you're enjoying the show and you want to support the project and also help me grow the podcast to the next level and keep on getting great guests you can support the show through going to the Patreon page and sign up for a monthly subscription of any size great or small you can find the link to the Patreon page on the Rebel Matters Instagram uh, bio and also on the homepage of the Rebel Matters website which is Rebel Matters and again massive shout out to everyone who's been supporting the podcast so far it's a huge help and it definitely helps to cover the cost of producing the episodes and traveling to see the guests and also let me know lets me know that you guys are out there and you are listening if you want to get in touch of course you can do that uh, without signing up to the patreon just drop me a message on instagram social media or through the website and uh, if you have any questions or requests, then send them on. Uh, send them on and I'll see what I can do for you. Anyway, as I was saying there, Kneecap are coming down to play a gig in Cypress Avenue on the 21st of September. And I think there's some tickets left for that. So it's not to be missed if you're in and around Cork. You can follow them on their own social media if you want to find out a little bit more about the tour dates that they have upcoming and all the new tracks the new lovely tracks that are going to be coming out, including the one that is dropping today on Friday the 13th. So let's get stuck into this episode with Seamus Kennedy. As I was saying, the first seven or eight minutes are Ask Gilliga, so you can uh, follow along and pick it up if you want to brush up on your couple of fuckle, or you can skip ahead if you want to get straight into the meat of the chat, which is in English. As we have been doing in the last few episodes, also, I am going to read you a little bit of a bedtime story, or a daytime story, depending on where you're at, at the end of the episode. So if you want to stay tuned for that, just let the outro music play out after the chat, and then I will be reading you a couple of chapters from this book right here that I have in my hand, which is Boy Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl, which is a collection of Roald Dahl's early memories as a boy and we're nearly halfway through the book together I actually haven't read this book myself yet so we're both reading it together at the same time and a good few people have been in touch with me to say that they're enjoying that part of the podcast so I'm going to keep it in 
And if you want to be a part of that, then uh, just hang on after the outro music. Don't know if you've heard that little beep, but that was the hunk of a train passing by the window of the Rebel Matters podcast studio, which is a good sign for me to stop talking and run the lovely chat that I had with the one and only Seamus Kennedy. As a Craven Heron and Boo Moore, Craven Heron. You're all good. Um, could you ever tattoo Nish? Yeah, got Crutcher, so Crutcher is reached. No, it's less than a Clicky Club, it's Lehid Chain, I can know if he shocked the need to go going in the league. So, does you have a rest in Club Anafin? Yeah, yeah, Vicle, um, Pelagum and Donak in the league. So, this in Club, yes, and Irvac. Yeah, if you've couple of lost air going, I was going to be the rest of the train, all this in Club Reach, um, De Hina. I was speaking later going to start or they don't again. Yeah, and what's a jacker? Chapter I show like a very part and crooked gigi emerald of the club, couple of lanyation. Yeah, no, when you're even or even makes new good more like um, trade with part of the tippered iron. If I, you know, nay, me no marsh in the Vichy size road or a dollar rash quick in the last session club is Biogama Vime Kavlish in the last shin or if I, Tamlin Fada, Gaharas, the sour like Norway, Norway, Gakra, Langano, so Vichy Gajas, a dollar rash. Here, so, um, more Vimaji Gra, Vimaji Gol, like Pisa Yanni Askilig, and then, um, Kajala, then Paul Krasti Yanni Asperla, Gaharihe, the, like, the Kolkahar Tom. Tom, yeah, Ta, yeah. Sinatra. Like, yeah, big Tom McSnula show, Vinci Gage, Glanc with this, the podcast of August. So, um, yeah, um, if you Tom size on home sick feet or listen to, listen to Mount Clare, okay, you know, Tasha, Igari Gamah, Brisbane. So, pretty much shout out Mike Donner, Tom McSnula, Lord Shimerla, um, again, Tomlin, but, um, Vimaji Giri Kesha, Kurt, um, Carolum to Gaelic. Yeah, so um Gwales called Flumala, um Flumala, Darno, um uh Frasmanshin, um or you know, Igor and Bunskull Erfad, Augustin, um Frasmayer, Gwale Flosh Cation, Manskull, Clumala, so Nor Hussing Mission Shin near Vak Treeblin, Dunskull, so K Dargus and Treeblin, so near Vak um score in Mublin, Eganelm, so Yenman has so shock, three Gwale Erfad. So Shin Vogue make a Scunnerbrower do her sale, um, a Gorn Amont. Um, so we two small gum, I suppose, Lish and Gwelga, Nor Frasmere, uh, Kloshaberg on small, Yen and Gwelga Rish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. if I so, Yeah, Limnock, yeah, yeah. So female kind of Muntor Tain of Akam, Eric Mashin. But yeah, so Tong Gwelga, um, Treshan Fart doing so. So Chuck Savalium or you know Tom Gwale Major Four come out like Oh Lawrence of Gaelic yeah. Savalium? Well yeah, piece of Limager Four, piece of Yoke, yeah. Um, you know, Tog Gwale Ganvaki, um Toshi um Fishi Goldberg or Nemeton, uh good her Nemeton, uh she's serene or serene, um or five couple being uh, so yeah, I guess yeah, she um Gwale gets lot so close to come out. Mar as few era gurner vien which a genuine piece of as Berlin Shaw Lesson podcast, Pesha Aaron Kate or Gurlormudge like how Emerla, like, like, yeah. sh- no, like, 
Birgnach Blaine. Yeah, Birgnach, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because in the year of Michigan, went to Sodmore and Asma Kogelga. Um, Solar Hustle Gym, lots of August Le Carber, Kamasu, so train all the Shoal Texas, Gakra, like Nila or Inchiv, Asper Lomar Kerba, Augustasha Rouse, Maratom Mokogelga, like Nisha Rouse, no, Octasha Trash, Felsu, Peace, or Ish, like. Will make going to sawdust, you know, so she can't. It's Kevin Lum and La Nurahanic to a stack Higgin Jim, a Gorky, August Nura Vimajilos and Yelikala, as a female earned text the carbra in the end session. Oh, here, the Gilligan Shimmy, like Neil Winchy Burnley smoke. Yeah, being the lads and Susie Chen all just like fake and earn like will three keen wing orange and like, you know. So when Lauren thought I was carbra and Yelikan ish, Nura Vinci Trena? Yeah, Lauren, yeah, yeah, such a gross. Yeah. Tell us a little more on Daniela or in Furan and Will Gilgaga? Yeah, ta, um, like the moon tour, so, you know, Vilk, Gwilga, Mahi, like Nyla Mara, Brendan Maher, Ta, Kyle Barrett, um, Gwilga, actually, um, Alan Flynn, David Sweeney, Ta, on Queen, on Queen Moon Tour, Ta, Dermot, Sarah Cooper, Lazkamak. Maggie, Gilgaga, Maggie, what's the, Brian? No, ni, yeah. ni dolem, Gwil, no, ni dolem. Uh, son, moon tour, man's got a ta, shoot him, Mikey, son, he'll, but um, no, he don't will go like Mikey. Name me rock into the Ron and Mark Mikey Mata. Could you remember Hussey to Janu and like sort of stuff around TV in the TG Carrington? Just on Kador, Ian May Reevna and for and Clay Fui Fay Craven just Kershaw Glaker and Marina Shockton, August Dorchid and Will Simagus. I'm a show you and well, Mardor may be maybe go over the Nemeton, so Dan and Nemeton, so some production. Um, just in the the TG car Aaron Lay, so um, via or via the lads grave goil gagum August um, uh, no via the dango all the May August Kershaw Kester and the anime so Shilin Kador yeah May yeah. Class and what to Golarashlo or is Shilin? Ah, and you listen to the English race in road Christian Gafold so better maybe sacked or should rather be Conspo Jack? No, he told me anyway. Oh, in real flip, Jesus Shin in taxi. Also, um, better. Kershaw, uh, Shans, uh, Jesh Maida, Ashru, Higgin Burla, um, okay, Bavralam just lands on the but our way ahead of Tom, August in the Heshery, Napo Gilligaku, um, Higlin Ahru, Kaburla, August, Mahagan, Funnard, Toshak, the Lord and Yeligaris, just go for it. So, Arkashiv, Rencham, at Port Larga? Top Mission Mahoney, Port Larga, Fulor, yeah, Glown here. So, Sas, Sas Cashel on Nuam Ahr, um, August, Vime Mahoney, Young, Gdig, or Mace. Say Goblin, Dagdish, Amarshinda, Augustin, um, Isas, Glown Nahira, Mawar, like Nidshadak, Den Omahid, Onakela, like Shit, August, Shishin, the Fort Larga, so Vogamur, and Shinya, Norve, Anishin, Bitter Day, Nimero Kinta, August Hame Makoni, um, a Fort Larga, okay. Right, go to Mexico, Nervi Megle, Rintu, like Gilan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I know. Spent up until ten or eleven living in Newcastle. I was like, "What? Six shin yao grab? Could you ever have a fresh? I don't know. Listen, man. Gas. Um, okay, let's make the break. Johnny was wrote it on me, not her, but Lori was just better. If I tell him, it's weird. I know, I know. It's weird. It's, weird. Uh, it's kind of like when you're watching TV with your mom and dad, and like. Naked people come on. It just feels weird. <laughs> yeah. This is what's happening here. Yeah. But uh Yeah, it's a long time since we spoke English together, right? I know, I know. Uh so I suppose like just to recap on what we were talking about there for anybody who's like hasn't learned Irish yet, uh 
just like congratulations on you know, like the last few weeks and like the all Ireland and all. And um, I suppose to put it into context, you've been kind of training uh, bits and pieces of your gym training in Ackley and Cork because you're based here. So that's kind of how we know each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been class to be even just to be a little part of that that whole that whole experience. Seems to seem to have had a obviously had an unbelievable year. So like in the last twelve months from starting off like with Liam back on board, like and uh it'd be class to talk about that. But then also it'd be really interesting just to go back to the beginning and find out like how you ended up playing hurling and stuff and how, where our all started off. Yeah, so I suppose um like I was saying there, uh I lived in Newcastle till I was 11 or 12 and dad would be a huge, um, would have always been a huge Tipperary Hurling fan and my earliest memories are literally poking in the garden with him in Newcastle and dad would have been heavily involved with the Newcastle GA club at the time. So he would have been over there, teams from like underage all the way up as far as their junior hurling would be their first team, junior A hurling, so up as far as them. So my memories, earliest memories of um, hurling and football, I suppose, are going to Newcastle matches and following dad around and going to matches and then we would never ever have missed a tip match so and at the time as well my aunt Anya who's from Denier as I saying that's where we moved to now she was playing ladies football with Waterford so and back then Waterford had a, like they still have a very good team they're kind of coming strong again but they had a very good team there and Anya won five senior All-Irelands with Waterford and Mam would have won a junior all Ireland with Waterford in the first ladies football game that was played in Crow Park in 1986 your mum? yeah no way. so cracked her ribs the same day in Crow Park unfortunately for Mam but um, I suppose so there's been that interest there always in going to football games to watch Anya and then dad bringing me to Newcastle matches and to tip matches but even I would have been down at every Newcastle training session as well and just probably been a nuisance to the lads down around her but um there they are and then just always like an evening we weren't at something every evening was in the garden at home with dad and it was hurling and football always but um would have always preferred hurling was my first love now i love football as well and love playing it still but hurling was always my first love and was it so was there a chance that you would have ended up playing for waterford is that a possibility ah uh, well i was 11 or 12 when i moved to the like as i was saying and the uncles tried their best i suppose all right but I was actually in school in Clamell in the Gael School, as I said, because with mum and dad's work, they were based in town a lot, and we were, um, say, used to go to minders while they were working after school and sometimes before school. So I was, went to the Gael School um, in Irish Town in Clamell, and um, so I would have had a lot of, like you probably heard Michael Quinlivan and the likes that were playing football with Tip, and we would have had a massive group of St Mary's and Commercials lads, my clubs, in the Gael School at the time. So I wanted to go up and play with the lads I was in school with, and... That's just how I ended up playing in Clamell, and I suppose there was probably people in Newcastle a bit probably peeved off, understandably too, that I wasn't playing with Newcastle. And then when I moved to Denier, maybe the lads in Denier thought there was a chance I might move. But to be honest, the group of friends I had in the Gael School, we we're still actually so close. Primary school, we we're still very close, and there was never a chance. I was already too far deep, and I think if I was playing in Watford, I could have been put up for adoption, maybe by that. <laughs> That would have been harsh enough. Yeah. <laughs> punishment. So, uh, what was it like then when you started off playing the club and stuff? Like, at what stage did you did you was there something in your early days that said I'm going to play for Tipperary or how, how did that happen? Yeah, I suppose it was always a dream. Like any I suppose, any um, young lad in Tip um, to play hurling for Tip 
is a dream like just such like you've probably seen it and from speaking to Carber like the tradition and what it means to people in tip like hurling is just it's a way of life I suppose really um, as well as a game of hurling and um, but I suppose the big decision for me came I suppose in third year um, I'd, I was um, in Grave Flosh to Caton uh, the Irish secondary school you know small school as I was saying when I first started it was only first second and third year like there, we hadn't even gotten to leave insert and the principal of school Charlie McGeever is actually an unbelievable Irish speaker from Donegal um, he was the principal and he's the manager of commercials like so I suppose I'd, um, it has been really really good to me uh, but I had a big decision to make then I suppose there wasn't in Clamell is predominantly football area um, but as I said Hurling was always my first love so I kind of had a decision to make like right am I going to give this a real crack now like which I did want to so St. Kieran's had always been an option because a lot of people from around South Tip actually go to St. Kieran's and Kenny and Donica Fahey who is from St. Mary's one another and with Tip in 2001 would have went to um, St. Kieran's and Owen Kelly obviously went to St. Kieran's as well but at the time Turles were coming really strong and had actually won the All-Ireland Colleges around that time and the Harty Cup and the bus was going from Clamell um, every morning at half seven so I decided for a transition I said you know what I'm going to give this a go and it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made to be honest with you and stayed there for TY 15 6 year did my leaving certain Turles and you know my hurling improved so much from playing in the likes of the Harty Cup and those competitions, Dean Ryan's yeah. Fitzgerald Cups, and just, I suppose, playing with lads that hurling was like, like myself, I suppose they all wanted to make it at hurling as well. And you're playing with lads from clubs like Turles, Sarsfields, Holy Cross, Lockmore, Castellini, you know, the big clubs in, in Tip Hurling. It's mad how big of an impact teachers can have, even in the early days, like on your, on your, like, your future, like, sporting career, whatever you end up doing. I remember. The principal of our school, the primary school, at the time, Jim Rotuma sent us all up to St Paul's, and he was a mad, still is like a mad hurling man, and um, has like really strong connections with Cork as well. But he was sending us all up to St Paul's, which is the club we ended up playing for, and uh, really kind of instills like a love for hurling from a very early age. And just hear it so often, like a lot of that kind of nurturing comes from school. I was wondering, how come you ended up going to such a small kind of Gale school? Is there something in, in the family that, that made you, that made your parents send you to such a small school? Um, well, the Gale school in the primary school would have been um, kind of fairly well established at the time, and um, um, so I actually don't know, really know what their decision was. Um, now that you say it, why we went to the Gale school, the primary school, but absolutely delighted we did go there because I said like the group of friends, we, like we have a WhatsApp group. Of called Gwale School, you no know, way. from the primary school, like of not just my class, from kind of the three or four year classes below me and three or four maybe above me. Like there was just we got a really really good group at the time and we we're very successful in sport in the school at the time as well. But the secondary school, I suppose, as I said, Charlie McGeever was the principal of the school and Charlie was really really good to me in my development um, in GA um, as a young lad. Like he would have been overall. Uh, Charlie's son, Carl, being one of my best friends, they moved to Donegal um, when I was in third class and Carl was in the same class as me, so we'd be very close. And um, remember we did the open day there and I remember just, we knew there was going to be small classes, but just the kind of the interaction we had with the teachers, was it was nearly like a grind school. Like there was 20 in my years, I was saying like we were able to do, I was able to do whatever subject I wanted, like, and, you know, going into high school, you know, maybe would have got my subjects, I don't know, but... Yeah. Um. I. You know, in a big school, like you, you're not sure. Like you're, you're, you just don't know what subjects you're going to get or how you'll get on. But I felt in the Gwail Clash to Caton that um, 
you know, I was really going to get on a lot better and I was, I was going with a couple of friends as well and Cahill in particular and you know, I was delighted I did. It was, it's a brilliant school and has gone from strength to strength since and even on my placement from Mary I, I went back and taught there like and, you know, it was, it was really good like and I love calling back in there. Class, the, we had a similar, kind of a similar experience in Belfast, myself and Carver and Nisha in that we went to Manskull Farshtet which is now College of Farshtet and it was a small school at the time whenever me and Carver went there. It was quite a bit bigger whenever Nishi went there, but at the time when me and Carver were there, there was no hurling team, and we were like obsessed with hurling. But we were obviously had to go to the man's school because it was the the Irish speaking secondary school, and it was not that we, we wanted to go as yeah. well. We were very proud to be going to that school, and we kind of like were on the struggle when we were in the school and trying to get recognition for the school and everything. But when it came to um, <clears throat> our A level years, which is like the equivalent of the leaving cert, mm. we. All three of us actually moved to St Mary's, which is a, an English-speaking school up the road. But one of the main reasons was because of th- to go and play hurling. We yeah. kind of felt t- like I definitely felt kind of guilty when I was going going through it. Yeah. But I had, I had the subjects I wanted to do were in St Mary's at the time, and I really, really, really wanted to play like the school hurling yeah. in Ulster. And it, it was probably a big decision for all of us. Yeah. To, to same, same as myself. Yeah, it was a big decision. Like and. The teachers were so good to me in the Guelph Lodge to Hayton at the time and you know, I had some good, really good friends there as well and but it goes back to I suppose what I wanted kind of you know a couple of years down the line and unfortunately there was no Hertie Cup hurling in the high school at the time and you know St Mary's would have been, would have been, would have been reasonably successful I suppose underage kind of not like wouldn't have been competing with the bigger clubs like when we got out of the South Division and so I, I suppose I had a decision to make right Am I, do I really want to give this hurling a proper crack and I felt going to the likes of a St. Kieran's or a third of CBS was I felt was important for me to improve and you know it, it was Would you have had a big rivalry with St. Kieran's at the time? Um, third of St. Kieran's probably would have been after they played each other now they haven't come across each other a huge amount even since I think they played in one All-Ireland College's final like the year before I went to Turles was the first All Ireland College's title Turles ever won? Like, so when you think about it, for the size of well, the big school and the clubs they're pulling from, like, like you know, it was, it's hard to believe that they've only won one All Ireland College's. Like, so actually, probably Turles and Kieran's, I'm not sure exactly, but I'd say they wouldn't have crossed paths with each other a huge amount. At the time, the big rivalry was Turles CBS and De La Salle in Watford. Derek McGrath was over the De La Salle team, and um, they bet Turles in two All Ireland College's final in the year previous, the years previous that Turles won it. Like when you're looking back at your teenage years now, uh, playing hurling, what are your abiding memories of it? Um, I suppose one of the best memories, I suppose, was going my first year in Turles in transition. We won the Dean Ryan in, and the final happened to be on in Clamel in my home field, and uh, that was really, really nice. I suppose I kind of felt like, yeah, kind of my decision now is, uh, I don't know, if justified is the right word, but I felt like, yeah, like this is this is going well now. What's kind the of Dean thing. Ryan? Dean Ryan is the under sixteen and a half. Um, competition for schools for schools in in Munster. So Turles hadn't won it, I think, in nineteen years, and um, uh, we had won. Yeah, we won it in Clamell in my home field as well, like in the same areas of commercials field. Like so, that was that was special, I suppose. That was would have been a good one. Um, other than that, I suppose just even playing with St Mary's, we won a few South um, titles with St Mary's, and we won a South Minor A title with St Mary's as well, and would have been you know we had a really good group at that time as well, you know, um, between the hurling and the football. So yeah, we had I had a lot of great days with St Mary's as well underage. Was there any times when you were, you know, developing as a young player where you questioned whether, like, all the commitment was worth it? 
yeah, sometimes, uh, not even really. Um, like as I said, we got some great days between hurling and football at that at time. Got some unbelievable days. So the sacrifices always felt like they were worth it. I suppose I was lucky enough to play on the minor football team in 2011. We won the Munster in All Ireland that year, like with Tip, like so that was at 18 years of age to be getting that experience. Like was just like oh my God, like I'm still in school. This is crazy. Like thinking back in it now, like you're actually only a, a kid, like, you know, you're, you think you're growing up at the time, like, but you're really not like. You're way uh, more kind of curfree back then. You are like, like, and you know, even you're so young and you're having to crack so much, you're actually not even taking time to really enjoy it and take it all in, I suppose. But um, yeah, things like that, I suppose, always kind of um, felt like you weren't, like you were obviously sacrificing things like but that it was worth it yeah, yeah back then, I mean back then like when you think about the cliche of being out pucking around like when until the sun's going down like that's actually true when you're that age like, yeah. it actually is what, what goes on like you're it just is. out there until someone pulls you back into the house or it's too dark to see the Can't ball anymore. can't see the ball anymore yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Or> someone <laughs> exactly. gets cut <laughs> uh, or you broke a window at home so yeah, yeah. I broke one a couple of years ago ma'am and she wasn't too impressed she was like you're surely too old to be breaking windows still at this stage but <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be too old yeah, um, how did you manage to play hurling and football the whole way through like it's a tough thing to do yeah I suppose as I said um, Clamilla like in the surrounding area Clamilla is traditionally a football area of Tipperary South Tip would be known as football area and uh, Clamill Commercials um the football is the football club I play for traditionally would be a very successful club in Tipperary. Um so like we'd have had huge success underage with commercials. So I, I don't know about managing it, it was just always done. It was just all I know, knew really, like that it was kinda of hurling and football, played both as much as each other and, and loved both of them. Um but I suppose coming to about eighteen, that kind of thing I'd all like when commitment starting to get a bit more alright, like I was my decision would have always like if there was a choice we made, uh, hurling always would have got the the nod. Like, yeah, and you started off then in your kind of university career was in Mary I. Did you play Fitzgibbon hurling for? Yeah, uh, yeah, we won a Fitzgibbon with Mary I. Um, so the first Fitzgibbon that Mary I won, um, I, I only had a small part to play in it. To be fair, um, we actually got a run with commercials that year. We got to an All Ireland club semi final, Bally Bowden bet us in I think the middle of February. So the Fitz was kind of in full swing at that stage so I kind of got back for the quarter final stage and was coming on in the games and that kind of thing but what, um, what year was that? that was 2016 so February 2016 we'd got bet with commercials and I would you know missed a lot of the group I missed all the group games at Mary I and went back in then so Eamon Cregan would have been um, the manager and uh, Gavin O'Mahony was involved Shane Nolan and um, Jamie Wall um, you know Jamie from the gym there yeah, as well. So, cousins with Jamie, right? Yeah, yeah. So for Jamie, our cousins, yeah, we are our great grandfathers were brothers, yeah, and fought in the War of Independence and no yeah, Tower Tipperary Brigade. So yeah, yeah. So um, he actually sent me the picture a couple of weeks ago. That's uh, class. So he just said it like two arrows pointing down. It was uh, Jamie and Sham <laughs> at our great grandfather. So yeah, it's cool, cool bit of history, right? Yeah. No yeah, way. And what yeah. do you know about that period of time? Whenever they were they were taking part in the war of independence, very little actually, to be honest with you. And it's something that I, I um, you know should know more about. I'm kind of plan to get to know more about now. Right? Obviously, I just knew that they fought they fought on the Republican side in the in the Civil War, so or War of Independence. So, um, yeah. So that's pretty much as much as I know now. At the minute, and their brother Paddy fought in it with them as well. So yeah. yeah. So are they fighting on the the pro treaty side or the anti treaty side? Uh, anti-treaty. Anti-treaty. Yeah, yeah. Anti-treaty. Yeah, anti-treaty. Yeah. 
And it's such I hope a I have that right now. There's <laughs> <laughs> a big difference. Yeah, there's a big difference. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a very strong connection like with Tipperary and the, the War of Independence, isn't there, in general? Yeah, like? yeah there would. Like, obviously, the song, the Galtee Mountain Boy and Dan Breen and all the lads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's massive, massive. And, um, you know, it probably, like even the County Senior Trophy and Tip is the Dan Breen Cup, you know, so there's massive connections there, yeah. Uh, even the... It was the day of the All Ireland. You sent me the videos of the commemoration. Yeah, the Sean Tracy and commemoration. It's tradition. I didn't know, but they, they say mass the morning of the All Ireland. There, Talbot Street. Yeah. yeah, when Tipper were involved in the All Ireland, they say mass there. Looked unbelievable, and a few of the lads from the club went, and they just said like shivers down your back. They're like, you know, it was unreal. Like they were ready to play like, yeah. after going to it. Um, but yeah, it's cool. There's some big traditions, and obviously we've. Like with Tip, you know, Bloody Sunday as well. You know, Michael Hogan was was shot. Um, so yeah, I, I was saying to him, my jersey from the 2016 final is going into the museum in Clamell beside his jersey from Bloody Sunday. So I can't wait to see that. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. that's class. It's kind of something that uh, often I think people kind of shy away from the connection between the, maybe the GA and like the the War of Independence and even the Civil War as well. Like that um, can be an easy thing to kind of brush under the carpet. And a lot of the time, people say that you no, know, like it's important to keep sport and politics mm. separate from each other. But then there's times when you, like that, like with Michael Hogan was playing for Tipperary when he got shot dead. It's like by the British army, it's impossible to separate. Yeah. And I think way. it is. Well, for me, it is impossible to separate anyway. And I don't think it's lost on a lot of lads at times, what you are representing for Tipperary. Like, like, as you said, like Michael Hogan traveled to Crow Park in like back then, 1920 to, to go play for Tipperary. Like I did, like 99 years later like lucky enough to like and you know we were booking up there to represent Tipperary and you know try and win and like when you say it like that it's quite mad like really like you know it's a bit surreal to think that like but it is and that's what you're representing and like the tradition that we spoke about that's that's the tradition I suppose that Tipperary GA has within GA it's probably something that, that rings true like around the country and that the GA is hurling on football it's more than just a sport and it's 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 kind of like a, an inherent part of our culture that's connected with, you know, like it is connected with the, the history of the country and like the, um, the the I guess the struggle against the British uh-huh. occupation and the Irish language and the other elements of the culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. I remember being in um, Belfast, January two thousand seventeen. Yeah, and I just couldn't like I suppose maybe it's just ignorance on our behalf, like the, the passion that the lads in Belfast had for Ireland it was just, it was ferocious, like it was unbelievable. And it was like, in tip, like it's a, like for us, like I suppose we've been successful, like Tipperary over the years, it's about, you know, winning all Ireland, winning all Ireland. But I felt from chatting to a few of the lads in Belfast that it was, it was much bigger than that. Like it's more representation of culture and identity and, you know, keeping that alive. I could be wrong. But I think you're right. Like, and actually, you were in Casement Park, and yeah. you know, the, the, there's a massive controversy over Casement Park, which is still going on. That there is no stadium. I don't yeah. haven't got a stadium yeah. at the minute. And um, we actually grew up just up the road from Casement Park, and I, I remember that time you were up. And even though Casement is still in a state of like absolute abandon, but there's a big banner that's still up there down the back of the stand that says like no falsia 
temporary hurlers. Oh yeah, and it's still it's still nice. there because like, the social club is still in operation in Casement Park, so it would be in there the old time. And if you go down the back, the, the banner's still there. And it, it really was a special moment for for people that that you went that time. Mm-hmm. It really, really was because you're right in that, especially around like in West Belfast. You know, from our house. You're within striking distance of about seven clubs from our house. Like St Paul's, Ross, Sarsfields are right beside each other. St Teresa's, St John's, Laviarag, St Gauls, like they're all relatively okay. close to each other. Yeah. It's you know it's a densely populated area. It's an area that has some that has some social major social problems and social like deprivation and poverty. And I think the GA plays a role. The GA clubs in the area play a massive role in you know, helping. Um, giving young people something to yeah. aspire to, and giving uh, you know somewhere to go, you know somewhere somewhere that's a place that people can kind of like express themselves, and be creative, and get involved, and get positive role models and stuff like that. I think that's one of the saddest things about Casement Park that it's after going to such a state is that whenever I was like f- from as far back as I can remember, I remember going to watch Andrew playing um, in Casement Park like in the early 90s it would have been the same team that played against Tipperary in, in 1989 yeah. and even though look, the result was not great for Antrim that day but it was a, a an absolute gent of a man from our own club and a great hurling man Jim Nelson was in charge of that team in 89 and he was like he was like God to us when we yeah, were kids yeah. like he lived just across the road from my granny's house and played you know, like it was a St Paul's man and we were going to Casement Park and we were aspiring to be like these giants on the field from a very young age. And then every, every day I'd be going past it, going to school every day and I'd look in. There was a gap in the fence at a certain point that was lined up with the middle of the pitch, if you know what I mean? So it was like yeah. behind the goalposts. So you were driving down the road and if you looked at the right point at the right time, you could see the whole way down from one goalpost to the far goalpost. You'd always make sure to look in just to see if there was a match on. Yeah. If there was a match on and you'd really fast trying to look to see what the score was <laughs> yeah. and if there was no match on it was like a little pilgrimage you're just going past and you're just like paying homage to the hurling gods yeah. and the pitch was like a flipping snooker table and even when we were kids there was a Joe Rogan was making hurlies in the stadium Right, so you had to go down there and into his workshop you smell of sawdust and you see Joe Rogan was on the, the squad that played against Tep in 89 as well you see him making hurlies like his hands like shuffles and yeah. you're like everything that goes along with that whole thing of just someone in there like carving out these hurlies out of ash and then you know like that really drove us on to want to play for Andrum, yeah. and which I ended up playing for Andrum. I actually played against Tipperary in Casement Class. in 2004 in the league but, um, was, who did you play in? I was marking who was I I was marking Paddy O'Brien that day <laughs> so was, did you meet him this year at all? No, did you get no, to meet him? no no uh, but uh, was, and John Devan was playing for that team as oh, well very good I was playing oh, with John Devan with him for UL at uh, yeah. the time. And uh, so all those things kind of kept us going and gave us a great sense of like motivation to you know, better ourselves. And that's like not there anymore. It's not to say that yeah, the GA that is focal, still there. That focal point. Exactly. Yeah. Like the holy ground. Yeah. Uh, but you're right to say that, that it, it is like a, it is a massive sort of, um, gives people a massive sense of identity and uh a great connection to the culture and I think that because of the fact that there was so many efforts made to take that culture away yeah, from people away, yeah. people you know, like we really needed we really wanted to hold on to it but and then on a more practical level it just gives young people something, something yeah. productive um, to do but I think I think that like I think that the 
the impact of when you guys went up that time was that uh, there there definitely is a sense of abandon, ab- being abandoned yeah. in Andrum, like it's a hurling county that's separated from, from all the rest yeah, of the rest in a way, like yeah. uh, going through all the years of conflict and stuff like that, that really made things very, very difficult, you know, like to develop any kind of, you know, like Anything. when Down won the All-Ireland in football, it was like the first time, you know, it was the first time in a long time that any Ulster team had yeah. won, uh, I think, the All-Ireland, or any of the six counties anyway. I don't know what exactly. year did Dylan win the All Ireland again? Um, was in the in the nineties, I think. Yeah, because I remember. Um, I think it was, was it Mickey Hart's like or Gail, and he like he mentioned that point as well, and he mentioned how like the Ulster teams during the time of the troubles they didn't win in All Ireland. Yeah. You know, like and them competing at a national level was, you know, was seriously affected. But like naturally enough, and that like. No Ulster team won an All Ireland football title during those years. Like, which, yeah, like it, it just was, hits yeah. home. Then, like you know that how big it was. It was a dangerous thing to travel as well. You know, especially if you read uh, there's um, Sambo McNaughton's autobiography. Yeah, Sambo, yeah. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I would have read it years ago, and he describes times whenever they're driving the train and the British Army pull them over and break all their hurlies and like, throw their gear into the ditch and stuff like that. There and at that really like is the least of your worries if you're going to yeah, stop yeah. by the UDR because they can just take they would at the time being able to take all your details and stuff and I actually remember as a kid that was the first time I realised there was anything that was kind of fucked up going on around the place was I heard my mum talking to my granny about the UDR checkpoints yeah, which was a, Brit- a regiment of the British Army that was like locally recruited so they had very strong connections with like the loyalist paramilitaries and they could set up checkpoint anywhere and take details and they, they did and like, took people's details and passed them on to loyalists and then people ended up getting killed as a result of it the Cross McGlynn set up as well wasn't it that was the was the army base right beside the GA field as well yeah. wasn't it in Cross McGlynn yeah, yeah. Just... Uh, so uh, yeah f- that's true and the the, the, the the council ground that we ended up hurling on um, for many years just still there. It's actually under threat at the minute. Glass Woman Green is used to be a big barracks. It's just around the corner from our house. So we spent that's where we spent our you know, like those long days yeah, like, yeah. talking around until someone came and brought you in or someone got till you got, got hungry. But British Army <laughs> helicopters used to land on that pit, on that field whenever we were poking around. Like like those big Chinook helicopters with the two propellers. Yeah. Like one of those landed when we were poking around one time and a, you know, like twenty five soldiers jumped out of the back of it and started a patrol. I actually remember hitting one on the head with a slitter. Yeah. Pinged, <laughs> <I> pinged him. <laughs> he, he, was wearing, he was wearing a helmet, so it was okay. But he fucked the slitter away and never seen it again. But, yeah, um, good story, though. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, that, that ground used to be uh, the biggest barracks in the whole of the north. It used to be called Silver City, and it was a big, overshadowing building. It was gone by the time we moved up there, but there's pictures of it that the walls were huge, and it was blocking the light of the... The late the day, like and into the houses around it, and it's kind of an ironic in a positive way that we were able to reclaim that land yeah. and puck around on it. But it's actually under threat now. One of the local schools is trying to take over it and close it in, use it as a um, astroturf pitches. So there's a big kind of dispute going on there at the minute. But I guess to finish the point that I started about two hours ago, there is uh, <laughs> the. The sense of abandonment that that sometimes was there, and I think that even this could be really unfair on the teams that we played against. But a lot of the teams that we played against, whenever I was playing for Antrim, used to drive 
as far north as they could and stop before the border and stay there in the hotel and then just stay in the hotel in the south okay. drive up to Belfast and play the match and then drive back to the hotel in the south again I was kind of like I, I always used to remember I was like, even when we were playing like say minor for Antrim or under 21 or, and senior as well you were like, why, like what, what's the crack like why don't they come up and stay in Belfast or somewhere Jesus, and, I didn't realise that no, yeah. Yeah. and as I say I, I could be like paranoid or like about kind of overthinking that but I think that the, the that um, fact that you guys took the time to go up and spend time with people there and kind of went around the club, a couple of clubs, I think, and stuff when you were up there. Yeah, we had a great. We were only there, I think, for two days. Like it was very rushed. We didn't get, I suppose, got to see a few small bits, but just the welcome we got from the clubs and the people up there was just unbelievable and so refreshing. Like I suppose maybe we don't realise, but like I suppose that the at the time we were all Ireland champions going up to, to Antrim was a big deal. Like, but just the welcome we got was unbelievable and. We were in the Culturaland, remember we spoke to you about that before, yeah, we were in the Culturaland that night as well and on the Falls Road, like, and, you know, it was, it was cool. Yeah, and the Culturaland is actually the building that we went to school in, or is yeah, it? Yeah, um, And I suppose there is a strong connection there with Antrim and Tipperary, like, being the, you know, like, the last time that we were on New Ireland was against Tip, and also then Denny Cahill was Denny Cahill, managing yeah, Antrim yeah. for a good few years. Darren Gleeson's manager now. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. that's right, and... Uh, I remember actually Antrim rattled Tipperary there in the quarterfinal some years ago, didn't it? Like when the first year Denny was in with them, they ran Tipperary quite close. It must have been about two thousand and two or something like that. Could have been. Uh, no, I'm not sure. And they I'm trying to think. They brought them within a couple of points, but uh, anyway. So what, uh, like, what brought you as far as playing senior for Tipperary? Like, what what was the journey there? Yeah, a journey there it wasn't a simple one. Um, Got called in in 2013, kind of during the summer. Um, we got into the Monster in 21 final, and uh, Eamon O'Shea called me in to just do a bit of just kind of extended panel training, um, you know, for the matches inside and training and things like that. Like, and you know, was was part of things and went to the matches. And actually, I remember that was the summer Tip played Kilkenny down in Nolan Park. And I remember I was on the extended panel, but we still talked into the warm up. And I'll just, I'll never forget the atmosphere in Nolan Park. I don't know if you remember, it was 2013. Um, it was a knockout, it was a qualifier game, and Nolan Park was packed to the rafters. And the atmosphere under that day was unbelievable. So again, they got called in fully then in the winter um, for before the 2014 season and um, got dropped after the league. And uh, I was so disappointed. Um, but looking back on it, probably didn't give myself a proper chance. Um, was playing club under 21 football and under 21 football for Tip. And we, that was that under 21 football team with Tip would have been the team that won the minor All Ireland. So we were very keen to try and back that up and picked up a few niggly injuries um, with all the heavy training and matches. Then kind of had a, just an ongoing kind of niggly hamstring and kept keeping me out for a couple of weeks. I'd be back another couple of weeks and. Just very frustrating, and um, you know, like it probably was wasn't up to it at the time. Looking back, you know, genuinely wasn't up to it, and so I got dropped after the league in 2014, and then um, didn't get called back in 2015. Again, was very disappointed. Um, but Peter Creedon called me into the Tip Senior Football Panel, and um, played a year with um, the Tip Footballers, and really, really enjoyed it. Had a brilliant year, and Peter was absolutely top class to me. And um, I'll never forget it um, when he rang me and he just said, look, he said, um, come in here for the year. He said, it'll bring you on lows. He said, you'll really enjoy it. And look, he said, like, you never know, you might get called back into hurling again. And I, I just, it, it stuck with me because I suppose he was manager to football team and 
he was still big enough to kind of say like you could still get to play Hurling like you know he wasn't totally selfish in that he just wanted lads just for football and I you know I appreciate that that he had that kind of few words with me like and um he like he needn't have bothered and um, I thought that was very good of him and then I suppose got as I said we got in that club run with commercials in um to the, the winter 2015 one of Munster clubs so you know the way it goes into the following year so we weren't playing all our club semi-final until middle of February and I um presumed I, I well I, not that I presumed anything but I, I just I genuinely didn't think I was going to get called back into the hurling panel I just thought like you know look maybe the ship has sailed like and because I'd gotten we'd won the Munster Club with commercials so I knew I was going to be tied up with commercials to the middle of February but Mick Ryan actually called me and said he wants me to come back in to the hurling panel so I was absolutely delighted so and used to train every Saturday morning with the hurlers it was just it was non-contact all hurling that's the kind of session they were doing on a Saturday morning so it was great so I was doing my fitness training with um, commercials and all the hard training with them and I, on a Saturday morning then I would go up and do an hour session but all ball it was just really really enjoyable so, you know those hurling sessions going yeah. it's just all snappy short stuff absolutely just lovely and with Declan Fanning it was unreal at those sessions so um, yeah had a great year then kind of um, didn't play any game in the league and I suppose I was flying fit from the club and just hit a patch of form and got into the team for the first round the Cork game and just went on and like had a great like we had a great year that year like won, ended up winning the All-Ireland and I suppose yeah that's, that's how it ended up it was just mad really kind of like if you told me in November 2015 that you'd even be called into the Tip, or tip Hurling panel I'd have been thrilled and then 12 months later you played in the All-Ireland final one it was just a bit surreal to be honest like whatever about being out you know pucking around with your mates until the sun goes down when you're a teenager but having given that commitment to become a like top flight senior player and then like getting dropped like how that must be a big hit to like your confidence or your like your sense of like identity or something like that was it hard how was it how did you get back from that yeah it was hard like it was, like, it was very hard and but th- thankfully it was some really good people around me um mom and dad have been unbelievable um to me from from day one like and i suppose the last couple of weeks you see all the people slapping me on the back you know saying well done and all this and you know there's, I've, I've been lucky enough to have some brilliant highs i suppose in um in my hurling football career but you know there's been some pretty pretty bad lows as well you know sporting wise now thankfully like like in real life like in suppose there hasn't been too many bad lows around like that thank god um but in sport like and i just think you have good days and bad days in sport and people like mom and dad and i think the likes of billy carl involved with saint mary's and uh, martin could live in blasts and commercials and a few other people at the club and a few other friends just billy carl saying to me always was he says stay knocking on that door and eventually it will open for you and it's something he's always said to me and he's, he's brilliant. Like Billy Carr's a legend in St. Mary's and if I go anywhere and tip to any club or anything and people in those clubs ask me, how's Billy Carroll? How's Billy Carroll? And I suppose just those kind of advice and having good people around you and I suppose I never gave up on it either too. You know, I stayed working away and, you know, hoped that someday it might turn for me and thankfully it did. Are there times whenever the, you know, taking the hit when you have to take a step back from a panel because you're not getting called up or something like that where that hit can like affect your mental health like in the real life yeah well thankfully um i suppose i've learned 
to kind of separate that that I'm not my whole life isn't just hurling um, with tip or it's not just hurling football with St. Mary's and commercials that um, like I'd hate to be just seen as a Tipperary hurler like you know that kind of I'd like to be able to separate Seamus yeah. to just Seamus that works in Cork and has a crack with the lads living in the house there and you know whatever else um, but yeah, and thankfully I don't suffer from, from those bad laws Thank, t- touch wood I don't but I'm sure there is people that do suffer from it like and that's only I suppose the pressures now to come with it and the pressures of winning and the pressures of I think society today is all about you know win 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 and succeed succeed like you know it's maybe it can be hard for lads to kind of cope with that cope with not getting something like that but um I think there's very few people I think that go through an inter-county career smooth sailing. You know, I think, like if you chat, 95% of, maybe 99% of inter-county players, they've had some probably very bad knocks or some serious lows, you know, between injuries, dropping off panels, different things like that, loss of form, you know. So I think just taking the rough with the smooth is very important. Where did you get that mentality from of being able to separate yourself and like acknowledging that you're more than just a, a hurler or a footballer I think that's just maybe over the, the last couple of years maybe um, yeah I suppose in 2016 as I said um, it happened very quick and all of a sudden you'd won all Ireland with tip and there was all you know everyone patting you on the back and that kind of thing and you know oh geez, that's Seamus Kennedy there maybe you might hear the street in Clamell or some pub in Clamell at Christmas time or something like that and not that it like don't get me wrong we put ourselves up there we put ourselves out there to to play for tip and that, things like that and it's absolutely brilliant like it's it's a privilege but um i don't know really i just i'd hate to be defined as just a hurler like you know or a footballer and um i suppose thankfully i have a good group of friends here in court that i'm living with and in and in clamell and the lads i was in college with as well that like i could meet them and if we were together for two days in a row we might never speak about hurling football I think it's such a, a valuable trait to have because I would imagine that there especially probably for the younger players out there that you can grow up in a place that you know hurling or football or another sport is like the main thing in the community and someone becomes very good at it and gets a lot of credit for it from a very young age up until they're you know like a young adult or whatever but then it ends up in a position where they're a lot of their identity is tied up in being just a sports player, but that's a very fickle kind of an identity to have, and that like it can be, it can take a a hit anytime. Like you break your leg, or you, as you say, like you could start playing bad, or something like that can happen. And I think it's a really valuable, probably thing for other people to hear that we know or everyone is more than just a sports player. Yeah, um, absolutely, and and like even you know the lads on the panel like are they're such good lads like and you know you often hear like in tip there's always been rumors there's always if tip aren't playing well there's rumors you know and you're kind of just going oh my god here we go again like who's involved this time or what have we done now like and it's it's kind of become nearly like you know you just start laughing about it now like but the thing i suppose that can affect some people like we said there before like or like i was involved in the rumors in 2017 you know there was a few with drinking the week before the Cork match and like I didn't care like you know I didn't but there was other rumours as well that like were you know a lot more serious than that and you're just kind of going you know there's actually people's 
parents reading this or there's actually friends or girlfriends or that are actually being affected by this you know and I suppose it goes back to like I think you were saying there the younger people like social media you now like it's just it's so easy f- for anybody to put an opinion up there and I could just take off yeah I could just take off and yeah so I don't know really uh, people do like uh, gossiping is a, a really good pastime for a lot of people as well and that like I was actually on the train from uh, Limerick Junction to back to Cork a few weeks ago it was the week it was only it was I'd say three days before the All-Ireland final or something like that yeah and it was two lads sitting behind me and they were steaming and they were <laughs> <laughs> actually re- recorded a little bit of the conversation <laughs> oh, and sent it to Carbra because they were cutting the back out of all of you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds about right. <laughs> but like, there was obviously no, no badness in it. They were just... Yeah. And it's water, off the, it's water off a duck's back, I think, now at this stage for a lot of people. But like, as you said, if you're young coming into the panel, like that might take a bit of getting used to, you know, and that kind of thing. Like, But, you know, it's part and parcel of it now. Mm. What's it like? What was the, the setup like this year? It must have been something special as soon as you, you went the whole way. Yeah, it was top class. It really was. Um, you know, um, obviously, as a young lad in 2008, you know, eight, nine, ten, watching the, the tip teams that Liam was involved in. Like, you know, I remember being in Crow Park in 2007 and tip lost to Wexford, and it was just, it was such, like, I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, like, where are tip going? And then Liam came in and totally lifted the whole county. Like, you know, and by the time he'd finished in 10, we'd won in All Ireland and stopped Kilkenny, you know, for the famous drive for five. And, like, I think as soon as Liam was announced, there was just huge buzz and excitement around the county like and I just think like Liam has been absolutely top class and you know the guys he's got involved around him have been unbelievable as well like and Carber has done an unbelievable job you know with us this year and he's done so much work you know between the fitness on the field and the gyms and like even your like you were saying you played a small part but it's actually quite a big part like you played like we were able to use your gym here on a Monday and Wednesday evening like or you were able to let us come in and stretch when we needed to or if there was anything extra we needed like you know it was it was there for us like and we had actual base to go to like and you know the great coaches in Ockley like you know if there was a question you know am I doing this right am I doing this wrong you know we were able to you know, be directed like you know so it's been an absolute you know it was such an enjoyable year like it really was the energy seems to be bursting out of Liam like you see him on the sideline like he looks like he's going out flipping good stuff yeah. to someone sometimes yeah. <laughs> yeah I want to put a GPS on it maybe see what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so what then at what stage during the year did you think like shit this is going this could go somewhere like, was there a particular turning point or was it even like I was even thinking like it seemed to be looking from the outside that after the Limerick match must have been a turning point for you is because that was kind of a low point. Yeah, so the Limerick point was a low point. I think the big thing about the Limerick game was we were just so disappointed with ourselves and how we kind of, how we played on the day. Like, and you know, I think we were anxious to put that right. We just didn't do ourselves justice on the day or didn't do the setup or like what had be, what has been put into us all year. Like we didn't do that justice on the Munster final. I think, you know, that pissed us off a bit to be honest with you. And, and I suppose the bi- all the big questions were coming up again about tip, like, you know, that we just spoke about there. Like, but we didn't really let any of that affect us, to be fair. And, you know, we got turning points. I suppose the obvious one is is the last 20 minutes or the second half against Wexford, you know, when you were down to 14 men and all sorts of questions were asked. And, you know, we answered them. And, like, that was so sweet that day. But to be honest, like, as you said there, as soon as we started training back, there was just an unbelievable buzz and energy 
about the thing and um always felt that something was going to happen with the group you know and um but i suppose if you had to pick one probably was the wax frame but from day one there was just an unbelievable energy and buzz around the place what's it like what's it like when you're in the all in a final and you're getting ready for it like in uh the whole build up to that and as a side question to that when I was reading through your diary that you kind of you had in the in the paper in the run up to the other and you were talking about going to the well beside where oh, Paddy's well yeah, yeah. yeah maybe you could like talk a little bit about that as well but um, also the kind of the whole build up because it must be I mean is there any way to have a build up to an Ireland final when you're so involved in it without feeling a measure of pressure or, or how does the whole thing go um, yeah like people I think get or I suppose people always like, geez, how did you prepare for that? Or how do you get rid of it? But like, like we spoke about those as a kid in the garden or on a field and like you're dreaming, you're dreaming of playing for tip and all of a sudden you're getting ready for an All-Ireland final and you're actually living your dream. Like there's not many people get to live their dream. Like so, so lucky and so privileged that I remember Noel McGrath saying it to me after the All-Ireland semi-final in 2016. He says, you know what, people are about to build up for the All-Ireland final in three weeks. And he just said to me, he said, enjoy this, he said. Like, this, he said, this is what it's all about. Like, And yeah, there's nerves and there's bits of pressure and that. Like, but like if, you, if you can't enjoy the build-up to an All-Ireland final, like, you know, or like you're in the wrong game. Like, for me anyway, like, and you know, I, I enjoyed it. And I suppose on, in that diary I mentioned, I, like I spent most of the week in Cork. That's great. Like I can, the helmets are the best thing ever. I can walk over to Mahan for a cup of coffee. I can, you know, go into town for a stroll around and no one has an, an idea who I am. And I love that. Absolutely love that. Like, so, you know, um, that's probably how I, you know, prepared really just stuck at the same thing. I think it was in with G on the Wednesday and, you know, got my few bits that I needed sorted and, you know, surrounded myself with the people that I normally surround myself with coming up to a match. And yeah, Paddy as well is, um, is, um, it's a great place really. Um, since I was, I don't know, I'd say 12, maybe a bit older, any aches or pains, if we ever had it, that's where we were brought. Probably Bloss and Michael Quinlivan, um, initially Bloss would have always brought the two of us down there and to sit in the well and he'd be timing us. And, um, do whatever seven eight ten minutes and just always gone there and um and he's just to freshen up the legs and that kind of thing and but it's actually i don't know if, if you've been in paddy's well probably not i'll have to show you sometime but uh it's actually an unbelievable like it's kept so well there's a proper committee there to keep it and it's just i love going down there sometimes just to you know think and you know that kind of thing and get away from the world and that kind of way and that's exactly what I was thinking when I, when I was reading your description of it it seemed like it was after becoming a kind of a meditative practice or something going down there and just like yeah without even head. meaning to be like, it's not like I'm, I'm not someone that you know does meditate really or anything like that but I think Paddy as well has probably just become a place for me that I can go down and if I've had a good game if I've had a bad game or I don't know a shit week in college or a shit week in work or whatever it is just go down kind of even if I don't get in and have a stroll around or whatever, go down with a couple of the lads and have a bit of crack. And I suppose it's just, it's become that, I suppose. And um, I love going down there still and yeah, use it quite a bit. What about the the day of then, the game? What was the, what's the rundown of like, how, how did that whole thing go for you? Day of the game, yeah, day of the game. To be honest, waking up on the day of the game, it's like, God, finally it's here, you know, that kind of way. Because um, at time, like you're saying, the build-up doesn't affect you, but obviously there is times when it drags and you're like, you know, there's, you kind of have to remind yourself, like, this is actually another game here. There's actually, 
you know, the ref's going to throw the ball in here at half three, like, and you have to play a game of hurling, you know. Um, so, yeah, I actually, once I wake up the morning of the game, I'm, I'm kind of, like, there is nerves, absolutely. If I wasn't nervous, I'd be more worried, to be honest. Um, but, like, you're going to meet the lads then, and kind of once you're all together, I think it's great, and we kind of all relax a small bit then, because, you know, you're, the preparation is done, really, like, it's just about letting it out at that stage. So, I actually, waking up the morning of the game, any game, the championship games are tip, I, it's always great because you know you're going off now to get to play. And I think from looking when people are looking at the All Ireland final or any game, you know, they're I guess they're looking at fifteen people who are wearing the same jersey against fifteen people who are wearing a different jersey, and that's cool. Like it's one team versus the other team, but then the other thing that's going on is like there's fifteen individuals on the pitch. They're all going through their own battles on the field or like just they're all having their own conversations with themselves yeah. what was your your personal conversation with yourself like um, in the lead up to the game and during the game even as well yeah I think for me it was just to, to get involved you know as early as I could in the game and you know get my hand on the ball or you know have a as I say get involved in the game you know maybe make a tackle or make a block a hook or something like that just to get yourself involved in the game because once that happens I think the game kind of goes from there then you know so um, yeah, I suppose that that would always be the big thing. I'm, I wouldn't be one for overthinking or overanalyzing things a huge amount. Like once I know I've the work done and that kind of thing, I'm pretty happy. Like I probably would have had a, a small look at the opposition during the week. Like nothing too major. I don't like going into too much detail on that too. Like, um, but just a few small bits and having my own, my own house in order too. Then and you know, um, as I said before, like you know, we've so much work done that you're just you just want to let it out at that stage. Do you have any kind of self-talk that happens in your head if you make a mistake on the pitch? Um, yeah, we would do all right. Yeah, and I suppose, again, that's just down to the experience and that, like, over 70 minutes, you're going to make mistakes, you know. Like, maybe, look, you could be very lucky. You could have an absolute dream day that you don't make any mistakes. But, um, yeah, mistakes are part and parcel of it. But I think once you're trying to do the right thing, you know, you can kind of forgive yourself for the mistake and you can get on with it. And, but, like, you've no choice but to get on with it now. Like, cause in a game, like an All-Ireland semi-final or an All-Ireland final, it's so loud, it's so hectic, the next ball is going to come any second. That, like, you actually don't have time to be worrying about it or thinking about yeah. it. There seemed to be a point, I can't remember exactly what the time it was in the game, but there seemed to be a point in time where you just kind of, like, caught fire and just seemed to take off then for the rest of the game. Um, did, did that happen at some stage? Did you feel like there was a change... Was it maybe even personally or even just with the team just seemed to like something happened? Obviously, the sending off had a big impact on the game, but or I don't even know if it did. But I think before the sending off, I think we'd kind of probably the first 20 minutes, like again, we wouldn't have been happy with how we were playing or the way things were going. Uh, but I think after that, we'd kind of started to find our feet a bit and started to play a bit better. And I think we got a few scores and Niall's goal. Or, um, you know really gave us that bit of, uh, you know kind of kicked us into gear then I t- felt and I felt around that time we were kind of starting to get a grip on things and starting to play the way we wanted to play and express ourselves a bit better so I suppose th- around that period I can't remember exactly I haven't watched the game back or anything like that but around the period of Niall's goal there um, I felt that we were starting to you know get on top and you know starting to do things right you haven't watched the game back? no I haven't seen it back yet no no <laughs> I haven't. It was on, and I think a few of the pubs we were in the week, maybe after all, learned, but I didn't get to see it properly. Are you going to watch it? Uh, I'll see. Maybe, yeah, at some stage, maybe I'll watch it and see. Yeah. So, the final whistle then? Yeah, final whistle is just, look, it's 
like yeah, it's just if you could bottle moments in time, I suppose that's it. Like and um, it goes back to when you started training and those nights when you were, you know, the low nights as well. You know, being dropped in 2014 or being taken off in games and losing games and things like that. And you know, you work so hard to get those moments that you just really want to enjoy them. So, what happened then? Like the final whistle goes, and then everyone's just like jumping on each other. Like, uh, did you have like specific memories from the aftermath? Of yeah, the- I remember whatever way I ran. I think I ran into James Barry in the two Mars, and yeah, that was, that was about it, really. But I remember then I knew um, I had spotted mom and dad, and like you know the family, and brother and sister, in, in the crowd um, just before the parade. And I just, you know, gave him a little nod. Before the match? Yeah, I'd always kind of, you know, whereabouts are sitting. So I'd always kind of just see, you know, you know, look, they've got here. They're safe now. They're all right. Kind of a thing. And so I knew they were around there. So I ran over there and made their way down to the barrier. Just, you know, seeing their faces, like, just, it hits home a small bit. Like, really, you know, mom, dad, Maeve, Sean, um, or the girlfriend and Nana. Um, you know, to see them and, like, they were, like, I suppose I'd been in the out team this year, so would have been going home in shit farm, and you know, and you try not to be, but like, I suppose mom and dad are in Clamell and they're meeting people all the time, and they're wondering, and people are asking, them, you know, what's going on, what's going on, and they're saying they, they don't know, like you know, and um, you know, to meet them afterwards, you know, it's emo- they were emotional, like, and then you know, like they've sacrificed so much for myself and for Maeve and Sean as well, like you know that, you know, you, you like that you've repaid them some bit anyway, like. I was up in Thurless visiting Carbera in the few days after the game and one thing that struck me is that like every shop is like decked out in a, like you know um, in the tip colours there's like there was a car that drove past us that had a life size teddy bear that was dressed in tip gear like it had a tip hat the tip jersey everything and it just seemed it affects every aspect of life whenever this happens like and I just kind of got thinking that it it's such a positive thing to happen to a community. Like, there's not many other things that create such an influx of positive vibes into a community, and that must be that must be great for like just day to day life and people's, you know, like health and mental health oh, and the happiness that it brings to them. Like even meeting some of the older people in the club or some of the older people in Clamell that I've met since, and you know, like, geez, we'll have a short winter now. You know, like, and it's just they're absolutely delighted what runs like and the lift it gives to people, I suppose it hits home, like, you know, that like, this is actually, you know, like this is special, like, you know, um, what you're actually doing in a way. Um, and how lucky we are that we can, you know, give days like that to people, you know, like we were, I was a kid in the stand in 2010, like jumping up and down, lepping and roaring, you know, when Lars scored the three goals, like, and, you know, like that, you know, made me want to go play for tip, you know, and that kind of thing. And, so it's just, as you said, like it lifts everything in the county, like not just the hurling, but it lifts a whole community and people like. Well, actually, we'll have to give your cousin Tom a shout out as well. Tom, yeah. <laughs> You'd <laughs> be delighted. He could have turned it off by now. He made me sick of you. Oh, yeah. Tom is um, Tom is from Newcastle. So his dad, my dad are brothers and um, they grew up in the farm in Newcastle. So they have a younger brother, Will, and older brother, Richard, sister Marie. So, um, Tom and Will would have been close enough to me in age, so I would have been over there a lot in the garden, poking around and that kind of thing as well. And they'd have played with Newcastle, so um, yeah, massive into the hurling as well. And Tom's, I think he was at the semi final. He was telling me, uh, whatever the time difference was, he, I think he left his phone off all day or on airplane mode or 
delete all his apps so that he went and worked his full day's work, came home, and then watched the Wexford match so that he wouldn't know. Or, yeah, I think it was, yeah, and you know, he did the day off for the final, all right, but the Wexford game, so didn't look at anything all day and went home and watched the match from scratch, you know, that kind of <laughs> like, he's, He loves his hurl and Tom, in fairness, like, and it's probably tough enough and your way. He got home from Australia for the 2016 final, but he's a young family now, himself and Kelly, so, you know, can't, um, can't be up and leaving like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the reason that um, that obviously that I know about Tom is because he's been listening to the podcast. Yeah, he's a big so. fan of the podcast. Yeah, he is. He is. So um, they're getting him through the work or on his journeys to and from work down in Brizzy. So yeah, um, no, Tom's a great fella and um, he'll enjoy this one. So let's say he'll enjoy the show out anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, class, so uh, it's only been a couple of weeks after the All Ireland and you're. Kind of, you're still training like you're you were in the gym doing a bit tonight and back with the club as well. And what's the rest of the year looking for you? Looking like for you now? Just yeah, um, I suppose got knocked out of the club hurling actually unfortunately last Saturday. So it's um solid football for me now for the next couple of weeks. Um, we got bet in the county semi final last year by a point or two. So you know hopefully I might try and put that right. Um, it's, yeah, it's two years. It'll be two years this year now since we won the last county final. So. Please God, now we'll um, get another run in the club championship. And um, yeah, um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. I'll stay training away, working here in Cork as well. So look, I'll, as I said, like we were so involved during the year with um, with Tip that just times you don't get to meet people you liked as much, like as the lads from college or, you know, the lads in the club. So, you know, looking forward to catching up with them a bit now the next couple of weeks and months as well. Like, are you, is there an afterglow? Were you just like walking around on air after after winning the All Ireland? Yeah, look, it's um, there, there was um, like the couple, like the last couple of weeks, like as you said, every person you meet is just on cloud nine over a tip winning the All Ireland. So, like, I suppose it, it's infectious. Like you're just in good form, and you're meeting people that are in good form, and people that are absolutely delighted. So, yeah, look, you are on cloud cloud nine a bit, um, and we'll enjoy it for a couple of weeks. That's in it, you know, that kind of way. And well, like, where is Liam McCarthy now? <laughs> Who knows? He's doing the rounds. I suppose, like, um, like it's probably doing the rounds of the schools at the minute. Like, and that's very special as well. I went back to Turtle CBS um, last Friday, and um, you know, as you said, like your teachers in the school are such an influence on your career, and that it is so nice to be able to go back. I hadn't been back there since I got my leaving cert results, you know, so it was a bit weird. I'm still calling Miss and Sir and all that, but uh, yeah, looking forward to bringing the cup to the Gwale Skull and Gwale Flush Caton as well you know so special special bringing nice. it back and bringing so, it out home maybe some evening as you mentioned the connection between Andrew and Tipperary and Carver has been in doing the SNC with you as well and I think that this could be a good pub quiz question but I think that Carver is probably the first Andrew man ever to lift Liam McCarthy in the Hogan stand the Hogan I don't stand. know if uh, anyone else from Andrew has done that jeez I don't know now so I'm not sure we have, like photographic evidence yeah that, yeah so. yeah <laughs> well deserved well deserved too yeah. um, I guess we can finish up now we're, uh, to put this in context for people like we're sitting in a dining room with loads of candles and stuff so it's very romantic <laughs> very romantic yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the most romantic podcast yet <laughs> but uh, it's been class and a kind of uh been had it in mind to maybe that we could do a podcast for for a while so thanks a million for coming and doing it and stuff no thanks very much thank you thanks for everything uh it's a pleasure and that's it so let's wrap it up um garmin and uh i hope we'll be doing actually thank you coming and do a session in the gym tomorrow morning yeah in the morning yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever you've laid out for me so <laughs> i'll try to keep up with you this time <laughs> 
Class. Okay, go me the magic show me. False uh, road, come on, good reason. False road. What did you think about that, Akarji Gil? I have to say, from a personal level, these kind of chats make me very happy to be alive. I bloody love doing this podcast and sitting down with people and having chats with them and finding out what drove them, the challenges they had, how they overcome them, sharing personal stories and having a bit of a laugh on the the podcast episodes. So thanks a million to Seamus for taking the time out of his day or out of his night. Rather, we recorded this episode between half past eight and ten o'clock at night. And then, as you might have picked up from the end of the chat, met up the morning after at uh, about quarter past six in the morning to do a session in the gym. And I think that is a testament to Seamus' commitment and dedication as an athlete that he's back in the gym, topping up his strength levels already. And as he was mentioning already, he's in full flow with the club still as well. So again, Gurukhead Milamagat to Seamus and Gorakhead Milamagat to all of you for listening and a special shout out to everyone again who's been supporting the podcast on Patreon if you want to become a supporter a patron of the podcast then go to rebelmatters.ie and you'll find a little button there that you can click on and it'll bring you straight to the Patreon page and that's where you can support the podcast if you want to and you can also support the podcast by sharing this episode around sending me a message getting in touch and telling all your mates to come and listen to the Rebel Matters podcast so that's it for this week nearly i'm going to play the outro music here and as i mentioned earlier then if you want to hang around for a little bit of uh, story time then let the outro music play out and then you'll hear me reading a bit of roald dahl's boyhood memories right into your ear holes so a card to be me a kind live galua slang of oil kenny fury august chucky arla This is a chapter called Going to Norway from the Roald Dahl book called Boys, Boy Tales of Childhood. The summer holidays, those magic words, the mere mention of them used to send shivers of joy rippling over my skin. All of my summer holidays, from when I was four years old to, to when I was 17, which was 1920 to 1932, were totally idyllic. This, I am certain, was because we always went to the same idyllic place, and that place was Norway. Except for my ancient half-sister and my not-so-ancient half-brother, the rest of us were all pure Norwegian by blood. We all spoke Norwegian, and all our relations lived over there. So in a way, going to Norway every summer was like going home. Even the journey was an event. 
Don't forget that there were no commercial airplanes in those times, so it took us four whole days to complete the trip out and another four days to get home again. We were always an enormous party. There were my three sisters and my ancient half-sister, that's four, and my half-brother and me, that's six, and my mother, that's seven, and nanny, that's eight, and in addition to these, there were never less than two others who were some sort of anonymous ancient friends of the ancient half-sister. That's ten altogether. Looking back on it now, I don't know how my mother did it. There were all those train bookings and boat bookings and hotel bookings to be made in advance by letter. She had to make sure that we had enough shorts and shirts and sweaters and gym shoes and bathing costumes. You couldn't even buy a shoelace on the island where we were going to. And the packing must have been a nightmare. Six huge trunks were carefully packed, as well as countless suitcases. And when the great departure day arrived, the ten of us, together with our mountains of luggage, would set out on the first and easiest step of the journey, the train to London. When we arrived in London, we tumbled into three taxis and went clattering across the great city to King's Cross, where we got on the train for Newcastle, 200 miles to the north. The trip to Newcastle took about five hours, and when we arrived there, we needed three more taxis to take us from the station to the docks, where our boat would be waiting. The next stop after that would be Oslo, the capital of Norway. When I was young, the capital of Norway was not called Oslo. It was called Christiana. But somewhere along the line, the Norwegians decided to do away with that pretty name and call it Oslo instead. As children, we always knew it as Christiana. But if I call it that here, we shall only get confused. So I'd better stick to Oslo all the way through. The sea journey from Newcastle to Oslo took two days and a night. And if it was rough, as often it was, all of us got seasick except for our dauntless mother. We used to lie in deck chairs on the promenade deck within easy reach of the rails. Embalmed in rugs, our faces slate grey and our stomachs churning, refusing the hot soup and ship's biscuits the kindly steward kept offering us. And as for poor Nanny, she began to feel sick the moment she set foot on deck. I hate these things, he used to say. I'm sure we'll never get there. Which lifeboat do we go on to when it starts to sink? Then she would retire to her cabin, where she stayed groaning and trembling until the ship was firmly tied up in the quayside in Oslo Harbour the next day. We always stopped off for one night in Oslo so that we could have a grand annual family reunion with Best Sema and Best 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 Mama and Best Papa, our mother's parents, and with her two maiden sisters, our aunts, who lived in the same house. When we got off the boat, we all went in a cavalcade of taxis straight to the Grand Hotel, where we would sleep one night to drop off our luggage. Then, keeping the same taxis, we drove on to the grandparents' house, where an emotional welcome awaited us. All of us were embraced and kissed many times and tears flowed down, wrinkled old cheeks and suddenly that quiet gloomy house came alive with many children's voices. Ever since I first saw her, Best Mama was terrifically ancient. She was a white-haired, wrinkly-faced old bird who seemed always to be sitting in her rocking chair. Rocking away and smiling benignly, at this vast influx of grandchildren who barged in from miles away to take over her house for a few hours every year. Best of Papa was the quiet one. He was a small, dignified scholar with a white goatee beard, and as far as I could gather, he was also an astrologer, a meteorologist, and a speaker of ancient Greek. Like Best of Mama, he sat most of the time quietly in a chair, saying very little and totally overwhelmed, I imagine, by the raucous rabble who were destroying his neat and polished home. 
The two things I remember most about Best of Papa were that he wore black boots and that he smoked an extraordinary pipe. The bowl of his pipe was made of meerschaum clay and it had a flexible stem of about three foot long so that the bowl rested on his lap. All the grown-ups, including Nanny and all the children, even when the youngest was only a year old, sat down around a big oval dining room table on the afternoon of our arrival for the great annual celebration feast with the grandparents and the food we received never varied. This was a Norwegian household and for the Norwegians, the best food in the world is fish. And when they say fish, they don't mean the sort of thing that you and I get from the fishmonger. They mean fresh fish. Fish that's been caught no more than 24 hours before and has never been frozen or chilled or on a block of ice. I agree with them that the proper way to prepare fish like this is to poach it. And that is what they do with the finest specimens. And Norwegians, by the way, always eat the skin of the boiled fish, which they say has the best taste of all. So naturally, this great celebration feast started with fish, a massive fish, a flounder as big as a tea tray and as thick as your arm was brought to the table. It had nearly black skin on top, which was covered with brilliant orange spots, and it had, of course, been perfectly poached. Large white hunks of this fish were carved out and put onto our plates, and with it, we all had hollandaise sauce and boiled new potatoes. Nothing else, and by gosh, it was delicious. As soon as the remains of the fish had been cleared away, a tremendous craggy mountain of homemade ice cream would be carried in. Apart from being the creamiest ice cream in the world, the flavour was unforgettable. There were thousands of little chips of crisp burnt toffee mixed into it. The Norwegians call it krokan. And as a result, it didn't simply melt in your mouth like ordinary ice cream. You chewed it and it went crunch. And the taste was something you dreamed about for days afterwards. The great feast would be interrupted by small speeches of welcome from my grandfather and the grown-ups would raise their long-stemmed wine glasses and say skull many times throughout the meal. When the guzzling was over, those who were considered old enough were given small glasses of homemade liquor, liqueur, a colourless but fairy drink that smelled of mulberries. The glasses were raised again and again and the scalling seemed to go on forever. In Norway, you may select any individual around a table and skull him or her in a small private ceremony. Your first lift, you first lift your glass high and call on the name. Betsa Mama, you say skull Betsa Mama. She will then lift her own glass and hold it up high. At the same time, your own eyes meet hers and you must keep looking deep into your eyes as you sip your drink. After you've both done this, you raise your glasses high up again in a sort of silent final salute and only then does each person look away and set down his glass. It's a serious and solemn ceremony, and as a rule, on formal occasion, everyone scalds everyone else around the table once. If there are, for example, ten people present, and you're one of them, you will scald your nine companions once, each individually, and you yourself will also receive nine separate scalds at different times during the meal. Eighteen in all. That's how they work it in polite society over there. At least that's at least they used to in the old days, and quite a business it was. By the time I was 10, I would be permitted to take part in these ceremonies, and I always finished up as tipsy as a lord. The Magic Island The next morning, everyone got up early and eager to continue the journey. There was another full day's travelling to be done before we reached our final destination, most of it by boat. So after a rapid breakfast, our cavalcade left the Grand Hotel in three more taxis and headed for Oslo Docks. 
There we went on board a small coastal steamer, and Nanny was heard to say, I'm sure it leaks. We shall all be food for the fishes before the day is out. Then she would disappear below for the rest of the trip. We loved this part of the journey. The splendid little vessel with its single tall funnel would move out to the, into the calm waters of the fjord and proceed at a leisurely place, pace along the coast, stopping every hour or so at a small wooden jetty where a group of villagers and summer people would be waiting to welcome friends or to collect parcels and mail. Unless you sail down the Oslo fjord like this yourself on a tranquil summer's day, you cannot imagine what it's like. It's impossible to describe the sensation of absolute peace and beauty that surrounds you. The boat weaves in and out between countless tiny islands, some with small brightly painted wooden houses on them, but many with not a house or a tree on a burr not a house or a tree on the burr rocks. These granite rocks are so smooth that you can lie and sun yourself on them in your bathing costume without putting a towel underneath. We would see long legged girls and tall boys basking on the rocks of the islands. There are no sandy beaches on the fjord. The rocks go straight down to the water's edge and the water is immediately deep. As a result, Norwegian children all learn to swim when they're very young because if you can't swim, it's difficult to find a place to bathe. Sometimes, when our little vessel slipped between the two small islands, the channel was so narrow we could almost touch the rocks on either side. We would pass rowboats and canoes with flaxen herd children in them, their skins browned by the sun and we would wave to them and watch their tiny boats rocking violently in the swell that our larger ship left behind. Late in the afternoon, we would come finally to the end of the journey, the island of Tjum. That's where our mother always took us. Heaven knows how she found it, but to us it was the greatest place on earth. About 200 yards from the jetty, along a narrow dusty road, stood a simple wooden hotel painted white. It was run by an elderly couple whose faces I still remember vividly, and every year they welcomed us like old friends. Everything about the hotel was extremely primitive, except the dining room. The walls, the ceiling and the floor of our bedrooms were made of plain unvarnished pine planks. There was a washbasin and a jug of cold water in each of them. The lavatories were in a rickety wooden outhouse at the back of the hotel, and each cubicle contained nothing more than a round hole cut in a piece of wood. You sat on the hole, and what you did there dropped into a pit ten feet below. If you looked down the hole, you would often see rats scurrying about in the gloom. All of this we took for granted. Breakfast was the best meal of the day in our hotel, and it was all laid out on a huge table in the middle of the dining room from which you helped yourself. There were maybe 50 different dishes to choose from on the table. There were large jugs of milk which all Norwegian children drink at every meal. There were plates of cold beef, veal, ham and pork. There was also cold boiled mackerel submerged in aspic. There were spiced and pickled herring fillets, sardines, smoked eels and cod's roe. There was a large bowl piled high with hot boiled eggs. There were cold omelettes with chopped ham in them and cold chicken and hot coffee for the grown-ups and hot crisp rolls baked in the hotel kitchen, which we ate with butter and cranberry jam. There were stewed apricots and five or six different cheeses, including, of course, the ever-present Jutost, that tall, brown, rather sweet Norwegian goat's cheese which you find on just about every table in the land. After breakfast, we collected our bathing things and the whole party, all ten of us, would pile into our boat. Everyone has some sort of a boat in Norway. 
Nobody sits around in front of the hotel, nor does anyone sit on the beach because there aren't any beaches to sit on. In the early days, we had only a rowboat, but a very fine one it was. It carried all of us easily, with places for two rowers. My mother took one pair of oars and my fairly ancient half-brother took the other and off we would go. My mother and the half-brother, he was somewhere around 18 then, were expert rowers. They kept in perfect time and the oars went click, 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 click in their wooden rowlocks and the rowers never paused once during the 40-minute journey. The rest of us sat in the boat trilling our fingers in the clear water and looking for jellyfish. We skimmed across the sound and went whizzing through narrow channels with rocky islands on either side, heading as always for a very secret tiny patch of sand on a distant island that only we knew about. In the early days, we needed a place like this, where we could paddle and play about because my youngest sister was only one. The next sister was three and I was four. The rocks and the deep water were no good to us. Every day for several summers, that tiny secret sand patch on that tiny secret island was our regular destination. We would stay there for three or four hours messing about in the water and in the rock pools and getting extraordinarily sunburnt. In later years, when we were all a little older and could swim, the daily routine became different. By then, my mother had acquired a motorboat, a small and not very seaworthy white wooden vessel which sat far too low in the water and was powered by an unreliable one-cylinder engine. The fairly ancient half-brother was the only one who could make the engine go at all. It was extremely difficult to start and he always had to unscrew the sparking plug and pour petrol into the cylinder. Then he swung a flywheel around and round and with a bit of luck, after a lot of coughing and spluttering, the thing would finally get going. When we first acquired the motorboat, my youngest sister was four and I was seven and by then all of us had learnt to swim. The exciting new boat made it possible for us to go to much further afield and every day we would travel far out into the fjord hunting for a different island. There were hundreds of them to choose from. Some were very small, no more than 30 yards long. Others were quite large, maybe half a mile in length. It was wonderful to have such a choice of places and it was a terrific fun to explore each island before we went swimming off the rocks. There were wooden skeletons of shipwrecked boats on those islands and big white bones. Were they human bones? And wild raspberries and mussels clinging to the rocks and some of the islands had shaggy long-haired goats in them and even sheep. Now and again, when we were out in the open water beyond the chain of islands, the sea became very rough and that was when my younger brother, young, that was when my mother enjoyed herself most. Nobody, not even the tiny children, bothered with life belts in those days. We would cling to the sides of our funny little white motorboat, driving through mountainous white-capped waves and getting drenched to the skin, while my mother calmly handled the, t- the tiller. There were times, I promise you, when the waves were so high that as we slid down into a trough, the whole world disappeared from sight. Then up and up the little boat would climb, standing almost vertically on its tail until we reached the crest of the next wave, and then it was like being on top of a foaming mountain. It requires great skill to handle a small boat in seas like these. The thing can easily capsize or be swamped if the the bows do not meet at the great combing breakers at just the right angle. But my mother knew exactly how to do it, and we were never afraid. We loved every minute of it, all of us except for our long-suffering nanny, who would bury her face in her hands and call aloud upon the Lord to save her soul. In the early evenings, We nearly always went out fishing. 
We collected mussels from the rocks for bait. Then we got into either the rowboat or the motorboat and pushed off to drop anchor later in some likely spot. The water was very deep and often we had to let out 200 feet of line before we touched bottom. We would sit silent and tense, waiting for a bite. And it always amazed me how even a little nibble at the end of that long line would be transmitted to one's fingers. A bite, somebody would shout, jerk on the line. I've got him. It's a big one. It's a whopper. And then came the thrill of hauling in the line, hand over hand and peering over the side into the clear water to see how big the fish really was as he neared the surface. Cod, whiting, haddock and mackerel, we caught them all and bore them back triumphantly to the hotel kitchen where the cheery fat woman who did the cooking promised to get them ready for our supper. I tell you, my friends, those were the days.